Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking coal and the coal market. 2022 was a record year for coal consumption, yet little to no new supply has come in the market, as a result primarily of the energy transition. This has led to incredible volatility, huge opportunity for traders, and unfortunately, much more CO2 released into the atmosphere. What is the coal market? Who are the producers? Who are the consumers? Who are the traders? And is the coal market the canary in the mine when it comes to hydrocarbon products in a decarbonizing world? Our guest is Hayne Park. Hain is currently the head of European Power and Gas Trading at DRW, a multi-strategy proprietary trading firm. Hain has had a long career in energy trading. Hain has a particular interest in the role of power markets in the global landscape and the changing relationships across commodities driven by the energy transition. I should note that the views here expressed are Hain's own and do not represent necessarily those of his organisation. And as always, if you enjoy the show, please do leave us a positive review. And I hope you enjoy the episode. Hayne, welcome to the show. Thank you. So I'm excited to have this conversation. We're finally doing an episode on coal, uh, which is a fascinating story, both as a consequence of energy transition, as well as deglobalization and energy security. That's the story that's going on in Europe. And I think it will surprise many kind of the, the, the journey coal's had over the last couple of years and is somewhat, I think, that some of the thesis we're going to outline today is that indicative perhaps of the next rank of, of fuels, hydrocarbon fuels that are going to be affected by energy transition like oil, for example. But let's start at the start, which is, can you just get us all on the same page about what we mean when we're talking coal? So, so this is a very rich product in terms of whatever different types of, of coal there are and so on. So what, what I'll try to do is give a very, very uh, rapid 30,000 feet up in the air overview of uh, what the space is. So the main differences in, uh, in, in coal are, are really the energy content and the impurity levels that are found in the coal. The energy content, uh, we refer to it as calorific value or CV. And the higher the CV, the higher energy content there is. So the, the, when you burn it, you just get more BTUs out of them. At the highest rank of these is what's called metallurgical coal or coking coal. And this is used for combining with iron ore to make steel so that you have a sense of how much stuff it's actually used to make a ton of steel. To make one ton of steel, you need 0.75 tons of coking coal. So it's quite a lot by, by volume to make that ton of steel. That's the main use for this kind of high purity, high calorific value coal. In the middle bit is what we call thermal coal. And it's called that because it's the main fuel burned in coal power plants for electricity. And, uh, it's, and some of it is also blended in kilns to make cement. So the electricity one is straightforward. We pulverize it and we dump it into a boiler and that makes steam and that turns the turbine. For the cement bit, again, just to guide the sizes of these things that we have in our heads, to make one ton of cement, we need about 0.4 tons of coal of this sort 
to make that cement for all our buildings. So when you see a building made out of concrete, you can visualize the amount of coal that went into that. Then going down the CV rank, we have something called subbituminous. This is low energy content, again, used mainly in power generation and less efficient. And then the very lowest is what we call lignite, which is not even really black coal anymore like we envision it. Uh, and it has the lowest energy content. And again, it's mainly used in power generation. So the main story here is that the bulk of the coal that is mined in the world is, uh, is used for, uh, for energy. Mm. And lignite presumably will pop up again in this story, given uh, what Germany is currently doing with it. Just, just before we move on to sort of the supply and demand, um, what's the problem with coal in, in terms of CO2 emissions? When we burn it, we release CO2 into the air. That's effectively it. Now, we also release uh, other, other things into the air as well, but it's the CO2 that's front and center in the, uh, the environmental debate right now. And that's, that's the main problem with it. On an energy normalized basis, it's about double polluting than natural gas in terms of carbon dioxide production. Right. <laughs> that's pretty, pretty succinct in terms of the challenge around coal. Okay, so let's move on to supply and demand like who's producing this who's consuming it can you just help spend some time on on that picture for us the global supply and demand is very roughly around six billion tons per year and the top three in terms of mining is uh, china who produces about four billion tons a year India, about 800 million tons a year, and Indonesia of about 500 million tons a year. So overwhelmingly, in terms of mining activity, number one is China. The US and Australia are actually not too far behind Indonesia. We don't, I mean, we know about Australia, but we don't really think of the US as a huge coal miner, but, uh, but they do mine a significant amount. And they're tied for fourth place at around 450-ish million tons a year. So from the supply side, it's an interesting mix of developed and uh, developing nations. And, and of these, uh, the U.S. is the one with the, with the most uh, advanced carbon markets. Russian coal is mentioned quite a bit. It's a little bit behind the U.S. at around 400 million tons. On the demand side of the equation, again, it's China consuming about 4 billion tons out of that 6 billion ton world footprint. India consumes about a billion tons a year. And once again, the U.S. consumes quite a bit, about 400, 500 million tons per year. I'm right in thinking that 2022, well, and we'll come on to prices in a minute, but 2022 was a record year for consumption of coal. I mean, the number I've been reading is like 8 billion or so for 2022. That's right. I think the, the Europe is actually the, the easiest example of this to see. 2022 was the year because of the rise in gas prices, we needed to lose gas demand by quite a bit. And uh, what other sources of fuel were available? Well, in the case of Germany, they postponed the retirement plans for the coal plants. So the market essentially reached for coal to keep the lights on. And again, they postponed more of their nuclear. So the, the world reached for nuclear. So what I like to say is it's an unfortunate event. But when the going got tough, we reached for nuclear and coal. 
So that differential between 6 billion tonnes being produced and 8 billion tonnes being consumed, was that 2 billion tonnes coming out of storage? Oh, definitely not. No, it's uh, you can't store that much coal. First of all, the piles of it would be immense. <laughs> and, uh, and secondly, the more the coal has an interest... There's a little, there's quite a lot of idiosyncrasies. You can't infinitely keep piling coal on top of each other. Although to us, it just looks like a rock. Physical coal traders who are veterans will know that uh, interesting things happen when you pile too much coal on top. Namely, that it can spontaneously combust. It can just catch fire. And the, it's not an unknown thing. And that happens because large piles breathe somewhat. When they lose moisture because of dry, they contract. When they gain moisture, they expand, and it's this contraction and expansion that kind of thermally activates the coal. So you could get you could get fires happening inside, and and you wouldn't necessarily know. So you can't pile coal that high. Now that two billion ton comes from uh, really it's an accounting thing because coal exists in a spectrum of different kinds of grades, very very low rank all the way to very high rank. Now, when I give you, when they, when they cite that 8 billion ton marker metric, it's, they're citing every single conceivable type of coal at every calorific value. Whereas the 6,000 numbers are when you try to take averages, normalize it to a certain most common grade, i.e. power station coal, and you knock out things like coal used for uh, refining and metallurgy purposes. Right. Okay, good stuff. Okay, so let's move on to the generation picture. Maybe we can take it at kind of like a the longer view over the last decade. And then we can contrast that um, to kind of what happened last year in the wake of, frankly, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and, and other ongoing supply disruptions and so forth. But yeah, can we start sort of the, a bigger picture over the last decade of, of how coal particularly well, has been used in power generation? I think it's the uh, uh, we can a, a good example of its evolution is China and the U.S. I think China has always depended heavily on coal, and it still depends very heavily on coal. Right now, its power mix is about sixty percent of coal, and the rest of it is hydro and uh, in a variety of other fuels on the margin. But it's predominantly a coal market, and the same goes for India, where about seventy-five percent of the uh, the electricity comes from some form of coal. Now, the China's investment in this space is to the point where like even now China permits about two new coal plants per week and uh, and that gives you a sense of how what their what their build rate is is like. Now, the rest of the world has been in declining in terms of share terms. And the U.S. is actually a, a, an interesting example of this. Right now, about 19% of U.S. power comes from coal. And th that number is, is, is sometimes shocking to, to a lot of people who don't see this stuff on a day-to-day -day basis and realize that the U.S. still burns quite a bit of coal. But the interesting thing is, back in the year 2000, it's still a millennial year, but back in, even in the back back in the year two thousand, about fifty five zero percent of U.S. power was coming from coal. So this has been a significant source of electricity in the last decade, though its share has been continuously going down. 
uh, as a result of the, the renewable build-outs that we've seen in uh, many parts of the world. Overall, how much is coal responsible for in terms of the overall power generation globally? And then can you weave in and help us understand, a little bit, like, for example, India, what are the other consequential coal-consuming nations? If you look at it in terms of primary energy consumption, and, and here I'm going to that wonderful BP statistical review notes, in terms of primary energy consumption, i.e., which includes liquid fuels and all sorts of things, it's 30% for the entire globe, three zero. So it's still a significant number. Now, if you remove all the things like transportation and only focus on the power sector, it comes to about 37% of electricity generation for the for the whole world. And that's and we get that average of 37% when we average numbers like 19% in the US and 75% in India. So the range for that is is very large. And given that until just a couple of years ago when Henry Hub fell out of bed, coal per on an MMBTU basis was still the it was, it was for a long time it was the cheapest MMBTU on the planet. So it was always the first fuel that developing nations reached to as they were industrializing, as they electrify and grow. Going, I guess, using the US and, and Europe, and again, I'm kind of like trying to carve out the last three years in this incredible story of of coal sort of renaissance, you know, not good for the world, of course, but in in Europe and in the US, have we, you know, are, I assume no new coal plants are coming online. It's extending the life of existing ones. Is the species dying out, so to speak, in the West? Well, on a share basis, it is, as other things grow out. But it's, not, it's hard to see an absolute decline, especially looking at what happened in Europe. Europe, Europe went from... Uh, and, and here I'm specifically talking about the, the imported coal market because the only, domestic, the only real domestic source of coal that Europe has right now is the German lignite in, in Germany proper. Uh, and the rest of it, all, all the coal plants in Europe burn imported fuel. Now, they went from a very high level, topping perhaps even like almost 70, 80 million tons per, per year of imports across various countries, particularly the UK, Germany and the Netherlands. And since then, around 20, I mean, there was a bit of a COVID effect in, the, in there as well. But in 2020 and 2021, that number went into the 30s, almost the high 30s. Since then, it's doubled again. And in, this year is expected to hit a number like 60. So it's had quite a bit of yo-yo as we went from in the early part of 2010 to 2015, declining usage of coal. And this was helped by a little bit of gas, but a lot of it was policy, like the UK deciding to shut down its coal plants, switched them to biomass, also adding an additional carbon tax on top of the carbon fuel, the, the EUA market that they were already part of. But that was on a downtrend for a bit. And then things turned around in 2022 right. as the... The market went back up, and then this year is expected to be in, in, high again. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, we'll get there in a minute. Before we do, one final piece of the puzzle to put in place is 
Can you just help us understand the world of physical trading? And then we can talk a little bit about what financial trading there is available. But, how, you know, what is the, the, the physical trading of, of coal? How is that set up? Is it that we've, we've lost lots of our sort of vertically integrated miners back, you know, a decade ago, certainly in the US. So, you know, how is coal traded today for the most part? So I go back to I'll go back to that 6,000 again, you know, this is plus or minus quite a bit, but just for, I wanted to pick round numbers that are, that are easier to digest, but let's go back to that 6 billion ton global market for coal. Now of that 5,000 of it is actually domestically mined and domestically consumed. So coal is mined, it's put into a truck and then that's trucked somewhere and then it is consumed almost all of it in country. So those are trades that are dominated by whatever the national companies are or the, uh, the various private enterprises that are involved. So that's, that's not the traded market that we see. The traded market that we see is just a fifth of that. So about uh, a f or less than that, a thousand million tons of that 6,000 million ton market. And that's seaborne coal, coal that is mined in one place. Again, one of the biggest exporters are Australia, Colombia, South Africa, Russia. And this coal is mined, trucked to a port, put on a boat, and then sailed somewhere else to consuming countries, importers like India, China, Europe, and, uh, and, and so on. So when we talk about physical trading of coal, we almost always talk about that seaborne market whose size is about a thousand, uh, 1 billion tons per year. And uh, that's a market that is dominated by the trading houses and the mining companies. Uh, these are these are names that are, are are familiar to everybody in the industry, like the the BHP Billitons, the Glencore Tech, and uh, and so on. Just give us some sense of the structure of that trade. Are these long term supply deals? Is it spot market? You know, to help us just understand sort of the volatility and the nature of the actual trading that happens. We have everything. Some of it is in long-term deals. For example, there's an annual negotiation between the Japanese power buyers. So the, the Japanese power plants uh, who are buyers of coal from Australia and they lock in, a, they negotiate and they lock in a Japanese fiscal year price for imports from Australia, the, the miner. There are other longer-term contracts as well that are tied to offtake agreements, freight agreements, and, and so on. But quite a bit actually, happens in the spot market as well, whereas a miner will have a shipment available and that will be sold free on board or, or delivered at ships somewhere. And uh, various interested counterparties can, can bid on that and then take it, consume it, deliver it to a customer or ship it somewhere else or, or do what they like with it. So, so when we talk about the traded physical market, uh, nearly all the time we're talking about this aspect. Yeah. Okay. And and what about the API you know, financial trading and the hedge, hedging of these coal trades as well? What capacity, what opportunities are there? It's a market that, that used to be much more liquid five, 10 years ago. So we have three main benchmarks around the world that are, I should say, the least illiquid. Uh, the, the, the main one is called API2, which refers to a certain type of purity and certain index that can price into the, the ports of the Netherlands. And that coal is delivered coal in Europe. Another index called API4, which is 
coal at origin in South Africa. And the last one is Newcastle, which is at Newcastle Port in Australia. And that's coal at origin as well. So these are the main three pricing points for coal that exists around the world. Now, there were some efforts and, and to a certain extent, there's, there's some other smaller indices as well, but many international contracts tend to be struck as differences to these three more uh, liquid pricing points. Now, now, Europe was chosen because at one point, Europe was, was a big taker of coal, but uh, it's, since then, it's, it's no longer, but it remains as a liquid index. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search, intelligence and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe and the Americas and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. <laughs> you mentioned there the, the dramatic decrease in liquidity, uh, and I really that's the sort of the story that we're we're about to now tell, right? I think we thank you for setting up us so well. So ten years ago, fifteen years ago. Coal traders were some of the uh, the most successful teams at these trading houses. It was you know it was a key team that most of these traded houses wanted to build. You know you had all of those miners building out capabilities in trading. Then it's a, a long period of decline, and then the last three years have been you know incredibly volatile for coal. And at that sort of heart sits this energy transition story. And it is indicative, like I said at the start, of kind of what happens to these markets as they essentially degrade through a lack of financing. And we'll come on to that. You know, all these other pressures that are there. And and then you sort of throw in Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And you've got this incredible story that in some ways I think is largely unknown by the public. I don't think you would, your average person would, would say that last year was a record year for coal consumption and probably be di pretty disappointed to hear that. So we're essentially talking as coal as the, excuse the pun, sort of the canary in the coal mine for these fuels that are on the wrong side of energy transition. Could you sort of help us understand the, the pressures that have been on coal that these last couple, three years that have led to this incredible volatility and, frankly, incredible returns for those traders who remain in it, solving problems in time and space for these power generators? Yeah, I think, honestly, coal has had everything, including the kitchen sink, thrown at it. It's it, it, In terms of just universal hatred for it is still is still going strong. That headline of Europe coal burn at recent records would really not fly well at any kind of conference or political gathering or one of the cops or, or, or whatever. But on the other hand, we kept the lights on, right? And that's something that coal has always done well. So, so I can start with the uh, uh, I can start with the overall landscape of it. Let's talk about financing aspect of it, and it goes back to the investment. Generally, it's it's not hard to find these charts that investment in mining have just been very very poor for uh, for the last roughly ten years. Depending on whose charts you pull up, you can find uh, 
aggregate levels of capex in mining that on on an absolute basis we're we're back to levels that they were in like 2010 or 20 2009 and we're still and we're a bigger market and we consume more energy than we did 10 years ago but we're still stuck at the same absolute number of capex so there hasn't been any investment in the mining sector in general and on top of that coal has been singled out as the worst one particularly power station thermal coal one of the aspects of coal has been one of the victims of the uh, the ESG uh, investing cycle and many many firms have declared it persona non grata in in all of their investment programs now some have carved out exceptions for metallurgical coal because you need that to make steel and uh, you you really can't cut that out of the global economy without without even dire even more dire consequences but uh, but thermal coal has not received investment in a long time so it means that the capex has been low any kind of reinvestment has had to come from operations which has made these coal companies much more nimble much more reactive to price and so on and this is one of the things that that has uh, that has hit the coal market and the second thing is just an overall the um, the policy lean against it for example the plans in uh, the largely successful plan in the UK to divest itself from coal generation. The UK does not burn coal anymore. And uh, and Germany wants to get there as well by 2038. And I believe that there is debate to bring that earlier to even 2030. But the developments of the last couple of years have thrown that back into the uh, the discussion room as, as, as well. So you've got the policy going against it. You've got investing going against it. And, and the net net result of it is that when we look out into the world, the coal market has not seen meaningful supply growth for many years. How is that? Can you just give it? I mean, it's stark, that comment. How does that translate into price last year? Because the, the, the price hikes were extraordinary. Oh, it roofed. It went to many hundred dollars per ton. And that's a uh, typical response of a commodity that has not received investment in a long time. Therefore, it has had no uh, flexibility on the uh, on the supply side. In the oil market, for example, if the prices go high, you there are things that you can release. You can pump a bit more. You've got spare capacity here and there, fields with higher strike prices, or even strategic reserves in in a variety of different countries. Coal does not benefit from any of that. So what it has to do is if the demand for it gets too high, it has to go up. Nobody's going to open up a new coal mine simply because the prices are high because nobody's there to provide you with financing. And uh, and the time delay is too long and the permitting is too long also. So you have to go to destroy demand. And that's that's roughly where uh, where it went. Now, it went hand in hand with gas. So it was the two thermal fuels that uh, that rallied along with it, almost in a in a ratcheting contest to see which one could get rid of demand first. Uh, it's been striking. We just had Saad Rahim on talking about how you know this is Trafigura's view very much that uh, you know we're probably coming out of a cyclical world for commodities into one of a high volatility, high price spikes, big price off, and so forth. And I think as we talked today, coal somewhere around one hundred twenty five dollars a ton. I mean, it got up to. 700 didn't it last year i mean can you just give us some sense of the magnitude of that of that roofing it was i well this word has been used so much that it's almost 
lost its meaning uh unprecedented yeah, I, I, I used it because you used it so. <laughs> <laughs> but, but but here we are i mean even during the great uh run-up in the uh, that was it, it, the last run-up i remember which was 07 06 and 07 when uh uh, I guess the landscape was we went from tightening to, to loosening by by the Fed. A wall of liquidity hit us and everything rallied at the same time. This was the time when Brent rallied to $147. Coal went up with it too, but, you know, only to like 200 or 300 or something like that. And uh, and, and the numbers that we saw last year were, were well beyond that. Uh, the other aspect of that financing as well is it's not just capex right it's also actually there's no financing for that one fifth of the market that's traded as well right so you that that also is having an impact on you know you're not seeing many different coal traders spring up all these large trading houses look to rebuild teams that they might have jettisoned over the last decade or so right it really the whole system is stressed yes the whole system is more expensive overall uh just grossly speaking, we can assume just from the the Fed funds rate going from two to five or or not the funds rate, but yeah, going from lower than that to, to four or five, we, we can just add that multiplicative factor to every single bit of insurance and, and so on. So it's it's not only have have you had that effect making everything more expensive, you've had players leave the commodity financing market. So, so the available number of service providers has declined as well. Nobody's falling over themselves to uh, to finance a uh, a coal cargo, uh, especially thermal coal, because it's even though, like, honestly, it's 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 like it's like a hated child or something, where you know it produces a full third of the world's electricity, and that that you can argue is it's providing power to a third of the population of the US of, of the world. And very easily, you can argue it's a third of the poorest population of the world. Now it is on a like for like basis, the most polluting, but but it still provides a lot of power. But it's uh, it, it, it has gotten people seem to want to forget it because mm. because it's, it's dirty and therefore it get it gets a lot of hate. And now we're at the point where if you're if you're trying to finance anything in coal, really the only people that will do it are, are like I can count all the banks that are willing to still do this on one hand. Yeah, and that has real world consequences because and and this is kind of the somewhat unintended consequence of these valiant policies by financiers and and and, and the public and so forth. But if you if you look what's happening just in the U.S., for example. The, the mines are transferring out of the hands of large public companies into private entities that are usually sort of one mine only entities. And that has the ability for them to uh, walk away, arguably, and, and there are examples of this from remediation and pollution impacts of those mines down the line and even today. And you've got the privatization of trading and you've, you know, and, and then you, and as you say, you take it to the consuming populations like India who are facing really high energy costs. So this withdrawal of funds from the system, this kind of blind eye everyone's turning it to, we end up in a world where Germany's burning lignite of, you know, uh, uh, in lieu of power, nuclear power. And you've got these private mines that no longer have the environmental um, oversight, perhaps, that they once did. And you've got this much higher cost of power around the world. We've just all come back as HC Group from South Africa. 
celebrating our 20th year anniversary and you know they would have rolling two-hour blackouts there partly because the coal that was turning up at the power generation had rocks in it and you know, corruption and so forth and would break the blenders you know and partly because it just wasn't available i mean it's it's creating a real stress point across the world and it's very hard to see kind of what what to do yeah, there are a lot of problems in here. <laughs> it's although let's be fair. Although I count myself a uh, an ardent supporter of free markets as the best algorithm for finding solutions to things to to match supply and demand in the in the in the most cost effective way. That's that's what markets do. We match supply and demand at a price point that is the most efficient. I've seen both private and public, vertically integrated, not vertically integrated, do well and then do badly. So there doesn't seem to be a particular solution that that's obvious to me one way or another, like should we put these hands in terms of, in the hands of national governments, but should we put them in, in, in private hands? Like I'm, in history we've seen cases and, and, and we can argue both. But one thing that, that is clear is that aspect of the volatility. Because volatility, and here it's, it's price volatility, that goes up when spare capacity goes down. And when spare capacity goes up, volatility goes down. And that's, that's purely a function. Like spare capacity, I see it as almost safety margin or insurance almost. It tends to dampen it quite a bit. And because if we've done it with intent and with a plan, that's fine then we're going to plan. But to reduce the spare capacity in, in coal markets, in coal mines like this, and not expect the corresponding increase in volatility, I think that's madness. Mm. So I, I do see more volatility going forward for not only coal, but any commodity where we have trailed below averages in terms of investment and technology improvements and then all the the TLC that these these facilities need, and uh, to a, a particular point that you mentioned, and I'll and I'll, uh, I'll reiterate it because it's such an interesting one is the the shutting down of the uh, the nuclear units in Germany, and what many people think will take up that slack in the short term is coal, and not just coal but the dirtiest type, most polluting coal that we have on the, on the planet, which is the domestically mined lignite in Germany. Yeah, it also reinforces. So I remember back in sort of 2013, 14, right? So, and we were working with some US coal producers and they obviously faced sort of the overnight drop in natural gas prices and no longer being the cheapest source for, for energy. And what was interesting is you can plot a graph back then of proximity to bankruptcy and ultimately bankruptcy is inversely proportional to how strong their trading teams were, right? To be able to manage those that period of very high volatility and also to some extent forecast it. And then you look today and you see, you know, the Glencore tech story play out. And there is a trading capability in there that gives Glencore an absolute advantage. And you're also seeing producers of hydrocarbons in general you know, it's no secret Shell and BP's trading results are just phenomenal, right? This need as we move into a more volatile world and you get more of these dislocations in time, space, price, form, all those things that commodities do uh, get transformed. 
you know, having that trading capability is absolutely critical. And, you know, one of the things about coal traders are the world hasn't really made any new ones over the last decade. So it's also a dwindling talent pool as well. But there is a story in there, isn't there, about as these as we go through the energy transition and that supply gets shut off first is what we're seeing in copper. We're going to see it in oil. You know, the need to trade becomes almost existential to be able to manage these times. Absolutely. I will not disagree with anything that you just said, being a trader myself, but, uh, but, but it is true. It's, it's difficult to attract people into markets like these that seem like fading legacy markets in the rear view mirror, right? When was the last time you saw a headline saying, you know, the future is coal, mm. right? So it's, it's hard to But attract. it's the hottest seat. And we did this episode with Kurt Chapman a long time ago, right? Crude oil, the hottest seat in the energy transition. I mean, given the results, and I know they're not publicized, you know, you could argue that being a coal trader has been the hottest seat in the energy transition in the last two years, right? The re returns have been... Very quietly so. Yeah, yeah. astronomical. Yeah. And, and, I can't, and what, what... I can't get anyone to talk about it, right? Because no one wants anyone else <laughs> joining the party. Oh, I've just painted a giant target on my back, haven't I? <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So one of the things, one of the historical examples I love, and it's my go-to kind of benchmark whenever I think through transitions from one thing to another, be it from horses and buggies to the the automobile and, and so on. But because it, it, it's, was it? Mark Twain? History doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. it rhymes. So there's a lot to be learned in history. And and it's it's uh one of the thing the observations I love is is that when we switched from whale oil to kerosene, that was in the 1800s, and that transition took like 60 years. And uh, there was a 60-year period where where the, the market was reducing its uh, burning of whale oil and increasing its burning of kerosene. And that switch happened because like whale oil apparently smells that bad. It, it smells more, much worse than kerosene, which is, which is why people did it. And uh, also, it's the ethical humanitarian aspects of whale hunting as well. But there were, there were strong economic arguments for it in addition to. Now, the way that I see the coal transition happening is no matter what we think about for 55, the plans and so on, these transitions take time. And the way that it goes out is with the long period of volatility. And then the way that the whale oil market went out was, you know, an epic rally. And then the whole thing came coming down. And uh, I don't know when that's going to happen. So in terms of coal, I don't know if that's going to happen. I don't know if it does, when it's going to happen. It's hard to get timing for this stuff. But I think we will repeat that lesson as we go through this transition as supply and demand come off in bits and spurts. Now, what we do see, there, there, there are hardly any new mines being opened. It's, it's the private investors are trying to bet. One guy is trying to do his best to uh, open that mine in Australia right now and, and constantly running into to headwinds. But no one's really expanding these things. Uh, there's some expansions going on in, in China domestically, but they can barely keep up with their, with their two plants a week run rate for permitting. So there's not a lot coming on in terms of the supply picture and the demand picture. We thought we were in a glide path down until last year. So if we think that the world is going to get more geopolitically sensitive, uh, if we think that the world is going to 
apply a value to security of supply more than we have in the last 10 years, then I can see the demand side for coal being quite uppity compared to the kind of stagnating to even decline supply side for coal. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I think that's the picture that we'll, we'll see, as you say, map onto these other transitions. I just want to, it's been a fascinating discussion. I just want to end with China. So they're, they're building these, they're permitting these two plants a week. And, uh, you know, it's worth noting we've done a few episodes on battery metals. Lots of that energy is going into creating, you know, lithium hydroxide that goes into our oh so clean, you know, Teslas and so forth, right? I mean, it's 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 all part of the same supply chain. Presumably, China, do we have any insight onto China production? I mean, that, you know, how are they going to meet that increasing demand? Is that all going to be domestic and sit within that 5 billion tons that's produced domestically and consumed domestically? I think, and well, this is, this is a guess, right? Because who knows what they're really thinking. But if we use past history as a guide, I think they've been fairly pragmatic about meeting their energy needs in the future looking at the, the best guidance document that you have coming out of china are those uh, publicly available statements for the five-year plans and so on it, there's there's like they, they tend to do what they what they say they're going to do now now the devil is in the details you don't know how exactly they're going to do it or the exact path or the timing but but they they tend to do everything there and what they've always advocated is is, is a mix they have a diversified heavily weighted to coal still, but they have a wide variety of things in there. They're building coal, they're building nuclear power plants, they're building solar photovoltaic, they're building solar thermal, they are building wind, they're building all kinds of different things, transmission capacity, and, and so on. So if you were to, like, I, I, think, I think we've wasted a lot of time in, in Europe debating which technology to go, whether it's this or that, or hydrogen or the other thing or whatever, Whereas perhaps what we should have done is just just let them all go, which is which is what China is doing. Mm. Planned economies <laughs> makes it a little bit easier. Yeah. And that's how you get to see if you want if that. Let's be clear. It does nothing for the environment. And so if, if you want to prioritize the environment, which is the tack that, they, that Europe has taken, then you absolutely want to go the renewables route, explore things like zero emission fuels and, and so on. But if you need to prioritize security of supply, which is, I think, the unstated goal of the energy policy of China, then do all the things seems to be the right way. Yeah. Well, it's been a fascinating discussion, and I'd, I'd actually love to have you back on uh, this year. And I know your, your interest lies certainly in the, the overall European energy mix and how those all you know have decoupled and coupled and the the trading nature of, of all of that so you know it'll be great to, to to have that conversation as well but i really appreciate you coming on and giving us sort of the 101 on coal because i think it's a it's an interesting slightly terrifying story so uh thanks again hayne thank you paul i'm a big fan of the show thank you for listening if you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show please give us a positive review on apple podcasts or spotify to find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. 
There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.